This is not just a man's world. Sports Stars Women Sports Podcast. This is Lavanya and you're joining me on a brand new episode of the Not Just a Man's World podcast. We're back after a very long time on the show and we hope to keep conversations about women's sports going in the episodes to come. Now we wanted to focus on the interview segment of the show today, so I'll keep the wrap short, but you can head to this episode's page on the Sports Star website for important updates from the world of women's sports from this past week. We'll make this available to you every Tuesday, so now is a good time to subscribe and turn on your notifications for this podcast and the Sports Star website. Quite a bit has been happening in the ecosystem this past month with an exciting women's ODI World Cup ending with a 7th title for Australia, and that's what we're focusing on in this episode. The 8-team World Cup was among the most competitive editions of the tournament we've seen, but one that was Australia's to lose. At every turn of the tournament we had performances to celebrate and close wins to marvel at. England nearly scripted a remarkable title defense after losing its first 3 games early on, but Meg Lanning and co were just too good for Heather Knight's side. So it only seems fair to sit down and take in what the girls down under have managed to do. In the 2017 to 2022 World Cup cycle, the Aussies have played 42 games and won a whopping 40 of those. including a record 26 match ODI winning streak which incidentally India broke process hard work sticking to the basics these may seem like cliche terms when we talk about sport but these oversimplified sounding words are precisely what went into the creation of a world beating side so how did australia get this good can the others catch up at all if so how does a country even get started Now these are a lot of questions that need answering. So we decided to give Aussie World Cup winner Lisa Stalaker a call to know more. As you will find out, the checklist for a successful and thriving women's cricket ecosystem comes at you like thousand daggers, leaving you confused about where to start, especially when we talk about a system and a country as vast as India. More matches, better communication, more domestic tournaments, transparent selections, women's IPL, there's a lot on that plate. So Lisa gives us a ringside view of one of the biggest sporting success stories and along the way also gives us a hint about where we can begin as well. Do listen in. It is my pleasure to introduce Lisa Stalaker to all of you. She is a legend in the Australian cricketing circles. She's a four-time World Cup winner having won two ODI and two T20 titles. She's moved on to join and become a part of the administrative setup and she's done some really good work with New South Wales. She's also a familiar face in cricket broadcasting and has been a key part of bringing some really great ICC tournaments to us sitting miles away from where the action is happening. Welcome Lisa. To start with, um thoughts about this win. It's a massive massive vindication not just for this team but for all the processes that are happening behind the scenes as well for Australia. So your thoughts just seeing this tournament pan out the way it did. Yeah, I I mean you know a lot a lot of people will say that there's a huge gulf between Australia and and the rest of the world. Um I don't necessarily see it as that. Um I, I, you know you're looking at the tournament as a whole it, it was the closest and most competitive that I've seen um since probably 2000 that's when I started to really follow women's cricket and then obviously played in the future edition so um yeah most competitive i've seen um the difference is that 
you know, with Australian cricket is that literally you've got an, a, the, an Alana King or an Annabelle Sutherland um, or Amanda Jade Wellington or Talia McGrath who, you know, especially for Amanda and Talia who made their debut back in, I think, 2016, 17 maybe, um, against South Africa, you know, then was dropped. But they have competitive cricket to go to. They've got a structured program. Um, they've got um, a chance to work on their skill set. And whilst our domestic players aren't full-time, they're, I think they're 0.6 um, based on salary and time commitment, but that's enough time for them to, to put into their game. And, and then when they finally get a chance again to come back into the Australian team, they make an impact. Same with Alana King, you know, plays WBBL, competitive cricket, WNCL, comes in, takes her chance with both hands and now has an Australian contract. So, I mean, it's a great story, um, but time, um, effort, investment has gone into the domestic level. And that's also been driven by the players themselves. Um, at the top level, they realised they were being looked after pretty well. Um, it was the next tier, the next rung that was really important. And that probably happened around 2017 um, with that MOU deal between the ACA and CA. Right. So you were talking about 2017. Uh, for the sake of drama and for the sake of just a nice story that we all like, we like going back to that semi-final in 2017. Yeah. Things just blew up for Australia and they came back with a vengeance. We don't mm -hmm. realize that that really sugarcoats the amount of effort that's gone at the back end to really get this team to, to 40 up to 42 wins. So from 2017 to 2022, what do you think Australia has done right that the rest of the world sort of hasn't done well enough if, if we can be yeah. very honest? Yeah, so, I mean, 2017, everyone goes back to that semi-final, but I think for some players um, the, there was warning signs, so Chamari Adipatu scoring that 178 um, and then also Australia losing to England, like first time in World Cup history that we lost to England, um, we, you know, even round matches. So, you know, I know Elisa Healy remembers that match against England as a turning point for her career, that she needed to add the sweep shot into her, her armoury because she was too predictable of where she was hitting the ball. Um, and then obviously the semi-final everyone focuses on, but there were warning signs before that. Um, so what did they do? Um, well, they, they put Elisa Healy at the top. They wanted to change the style, the brand of cricket. Um, they wanted to... to um, to really take the game to another level. And by doing that, they needed to be really brave in some of their decisions. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a long-term plan, um, you know, things that took time. Matthew Mott talks about getting players to a point where it allowed them to be as flexible as you get into the final and Meg Lanning's in her 100th game and she doesn't actually come out to bat. <laughs> she sends everyone else up. Like, I mean... You know, that's that's the epitome of um, team culture there, you know, team first instead of I. So, um, yeah, and, and since then you, they've had a core group of players. That's the other thing that um, has been noticeable. Uh, same with England. They've had a core group of, you know, you know, a team that has a core group of players. You can build culture. You can build um, understanding of each other's roles um, and then, once you do that, then then you can fly as, as high as you want. And that's what the Australian team's done. 
Fair enough. Uh, a lot of the players, especially Meg and Alisa, all through the World Cup, have spoken about how much the WBBL has contributed to this yep. sort of competitive edge and the fact that these girls know how to handle high-pressure situations on a constant basis. Mm. Where do you think this tournament sort of occupies a space in the sort of culture that the Australian team has right now of just winning everything that's coming into their way? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's played a, a, a crucial role because the, the, our domestic players get to face and bowl to the best players in the world. So um, for the likes of Alana King or or even the three youngsters that were sitting at home because they were injured, Taylor Valamic, Sophie Molyneux and Georgia Wareham, you know, they're, they're great stories in itself that they come in and they've had an impact straight away. So um, the other thing as well is you can't underestimate um, everything else that goes around the WBBL. So, yes, the cricket is competitive, but there's television, there's interviews, there's being mic'd up, there's crowds, there's finals, there's pressure, there's fireworks, there's flames, there's, you know, it's it's the whole occasion. So when you walk out in WBBL or the 100 now for the English domestic players, there's a sense of, oh, everyone's watching. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a performer, you know, it's not just the, my five family and friends that have rocked up to the grounds, like, there's actual spectators, there's articles being written, I need to do an interview the next day, um, you know, all of that. That actually, um, you can't train for that. Uh, you only get thrown into the throngs of it and then you have to deal with the pressure. And um, the prime example is, you know, I look at the T20 World Cup final, two great sides, India, Australia. But if you look at the faces of the Australian team, they're all just smiling. Now, I know it meant probably a little bit more to Australia because there was that 86,000 and it was in your home country and, you know, it was a, um, a, 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 a melting pot of so many generations coming together and it was just, wow, I'm on centre stage but look at all the people before me. There was that, but they just soaked it up and they smiled and they enjoyed it. I understand the Indian girls were very focused, serious and but, you know, they would never have experienced something like that. I do feel that the Indian players experience pressure like no other country because, you know, everyone stops when they play and everyone's a pundit, everyone has an opinion and everyone's quite happy to tweet it out as well. They may not know the players. It might be the first time they've watched it, but they, they like to do the comparison with the men's team and it's like, no, 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 it's a different beast in itself. Just watch a few more matches and then you can give your opinion. Um, so th- they experience that, but they just don't experience it enough at the domestic level. Um, so it's a huge step up, whereas the WBBL has probably been the bridging gap for us. So domestic cricket in our 50 over is still family and friends that are coming. Um, but then WBBL, it's the general public. And it's that little bridge between that and then obviously international cricket, which is another level up. But I think that that has been the main reason why we have hardened cricketers coming into our side and it's not a few years for them to get comfortable and settled and they come in and they go, bang, give me the ball, give me the bat, I'll do the job. That's right. Um, when you were explaining this, you were talking about all the many things that the WBBL gets right. right? Now, if, for instance, if the BCCI has to now sit down and say, okay, I'm going to revamp Indian cricket for women, how it's going to work. 
the mm. IPL, at least the intention to host a women's IPL comes in that periphery. But it's too many things on that checklist, isn't it, Lisa? You have to get your domestic system right. You have to make sure that these girls get a lot of exposure. You have to yep. make sure the game goes professional. Give them steady stipends so they can actually look at the game as a viable career option that they can think about without anything else coming in the way. Where yep. do you start? You've got like these 50,000 things on your vision board. What do you pick first if you really have to get going and start yeah. from fresh? I think first and foremost, you just need to find some regular cricket for them. So obviously the T20 domestic competition starts now, I think, what, today or tomorrow, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing that I'm proud of is that Cricket Australia throughout um, the pandemic has found ways to play cricket um, and both men and women. It hasn't just been the one. Um, So... I just think you need you need to firstly give your state and domestic players a chance to play. <laughs> I mean, you've got a lot of players. I mean, how many states have you got now that are playing? I think there's like what twenty. I think I think I saw something. Someone tweeted for this T Twenty domestic competition over a hundred games taking place. That's great. So obviously they've got to go in zones, but you know you can find ways of filtering. And I know that they've got um, the T Twenty Challenger that's normally selected what four teams um after that but you could probably go another tier again so you can start to kind of filter and figure out who your best players are um and then find ways to make sure that your 50 over domestic cricket is is put in place you you do that with the other different funneling of of players through um whether it be you know instead of four you go to eight you know you know, eight teams or six teams, and then it goes down to to four, whatever it may be. But you can you can start to ensure that the better players are getting tested regularly um, by similar type uh, standard players. And then finally, you should come to your your pointy end of um, the pyramid, and all of a sudden, you've got some great cricket where the selectors can go. Well, this person's ticked this box here, 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 and here. Um, and then if you can try and provide the problem with the domestic um, cricket is that you've, you know, there's no, there's no territory, there's no, there's not the bells and whistles like the IPL has. So, the IPL is the, is obviously the next step forward, um, and it's great to hear that they're looking to do that in, in twenty three, and you know, um, that's going to provide the right environment for your domestic players to shine. And you watch, I, I mean. I, I, I cannot wait to see it because I think players who I've seen at domestic level, I go, how are they not in the Indian team or the setup or, you know, in, in their squad? The other thing as well, whilst I think of it, is um, under WV Raman, they, he brought back India A. And I know they toured Australia. Shafali Verma was part of that tour. Um, Veda Krishnamurti was the skipper. Um, you know, Priya Punia was there. So, you know, getting that next tier a chance to play regular cricket again and travel to different conditions so that when they go to that country with the Indian side, it's not all that foreign. Um, it's not, oh, wow, okay, I'm in the Indian team. I've never been here, this pressure. So um, all of those little things really do matter. Fair enough. Uh, you were talking about the Eight Australia has definitely placed a lot of impetus on this, on having like not a second string, but at least like a tear down 
where you have people coming in the forum. How are these conversations happening in Australia? Now? Are they looking to restart these doors again? And I, I know they were in England, I think, sometime last year. Yeah, um, and it seems to happen like when you have a big tour like England, if you have your Australia A and England did the same thing as well, England A came out, means that players can, even off on your bench of the main side, they get to play some regular cricket. Yeah. So um, I don't know where it's at moving forward because um, we also had a, a, a national an NCA program as well where players would go up to Brisbane and train for a few months. Um, so like a Maitland Brown, a Stella Campbell, um, Alana King, those type of players would go up there and train as full-time athletes. Um, so I know that program was kind of put on ice because of COVID. So once we kind of get out of this um, this haze that we're in because of the p- pandemic, I'd like to think that those tours will come will start to come up. But also moving forward, obviously with the under-19 tournament um, scheduled for the start of next year, um, that's going to push a lot of countries to actually start to put programs in place um, for their younger players and, and stronger competitions as well. So I think a byproduct of that could easily be under 19s, A, and then your main side. And if you get all those three right um, and you get, you know, domestic cricket under underpinning it to allow you to select the best and then you give them the exposure, then um, anything's possible. Everyone's scared of India when they get it right because they do feel that they will dominate cricket at the highest level for decades to come. So I think every other country is happy that they haven't quite figured it out yet. (laughs) Fair enough. I'm actually glad you brought up fear because that's something everybody else is feeling about Australia now. Because even if countries do catch up, Australia is still going to be, what, seven, eight miles ahead of everybody else. I remember seeing this uh, PDF on the Cricket Australia website. I think this is from 2013 or 2014, before the 2015 World Cup, where they had this huge plan for community engagement, WBBL, uh, age group cricket, community cricket, club cricket, indoor cricket. You've got all of this in place, what, eight, nine years ago? Nine years, ten years ago. So mm. how does anyone catch up with a system like this? How the Like you said, you're, you don't want to use the word gulf as much, but there mm. is gulf, isn't it, Lisa? There's... This team is just miles ahead of everyone else. Yeah, yeah the, 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 I mean, to be honest, and I, and I worked at Cricket New South Wales in the development department as well. So I went out to schools and we had T20 blast competitions between schools where if a, um, if a school wanted to enter a boys' team, they had to enter a girls' team, otherwise they couldn't participate. Just those little different, you know, slight changes in rules ensures that cricket, and back then cricket was really trying to push to be seen as a sport for everyone. You know, if I if I think back to when I started working at Cricket New South Wales, which is the early 2000s, that was a goal. Fast forward to 2022, sport cricket isn't seen as a men's sport, not in this country. It is seen as a sport that both boys and girls, and we've got wonderful ambassadors. This Australian team is is amazing. Um, so yeah, so for a long time now, we've been putting in programs at a grass loop, grassroots level, because at the end of the day that's your feeder that's you know that it, it it cannot be sustained by one or two two passionate females across australia that want to play and they play in the boys team and you know and then they just keep striving that that that's the old days um whereas now it's pr- providing an environment for all girls to feel comfortable in playing the game um and that means creating all girl competitions 
all girl training camps because some girls don't like to play with the boys because the boys take over. <laughs> so just just creating that environment has really made a big difference. Um, the thing about India, the thing about Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh is you've got massive population. So, you know, if you went to the scale that we had, no one would touch you guys for a very, very long time. But if you get couple of programs put in place you still have the mass you'll you'll still have a great volume of players to to select from so um i know when i did some work with the rajasthan royals i um, went to rajasthan and you know especially jaipur and spoke to a number of schools and obviously boys cricket is in the school curriculum you know there's opportunity it's not for the girls so i was like well that would be the first place i would start you know, um, so it, it needs it needs us. You know, someone who's willing to do the hard yards, work with government, uh, state governments to try and create more opportunities for females to play the game. Absolutely. So, where does a player welfare association sort of come in this? Because I remember you had you were you were one of the people who spoke about this back when the news of them not getting their money and when there were things going wrong with the Indian setup. You had spoken about how you need to have a players association where people have a voice. Where does that sort of figure in in this in this? Area? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I actually uh, um, I tweeted about it when the pandemic hit really badly um, at the end, well, middle of IPL, uh, just simply because so many players had lost family, friends because of COVID. So. Um, and I gave the example that I was in India and I was a pass player and I was getting a call every day from ACA going, are you okay? Is there anything we can do? We've got sports, you know, we've got psychologists um, and um, people available if you need to talk, you know, just providing that that help, that lifeline almost. Um, you know, I, I think um, the pressures of Indian cricket and to try and make it, um, more so in the men's game than probably the women's game at the moment. Um, you, you players striving to get an IPL contract, going around to all of the trials and, you know, there's a lot of pressure because, you know, they, they're trying to probably sustain their family who have invested so much in them. Um, I think then, then there does need to be something from a welfare point of view to look after those players. Um, and then players coming off contracts and, you know, I'm sure losing an Indian contract and going in, back into state land is a huge drop. There's a, firstly, in the amount of money you're receiving, but how does that affect you, your family? There's a, there's a lot of stress and pressures that come with it. Um, so, yeah, Players Association, people think Players Association is all about trying to get more money out of national boards. It's not necessarily like that. It's about creating an environment to ensure that the players can perform at their ultimate. At the end of the day, a players association and a national board are actually working hand in hand and to ensure that firstly, the you know national boards are creating a system, a pathway, programs, matches, and the players association is working with that national board to ensure that everything's right for the players to to perform at their peak. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've grown up in a country where the Players Association has a very strong representative amongst the players. Um, you know, things haven't always been rosy um, between ACA and CA, but uh, I think our relationship at the moment is the best it's ever been and um, we're all working for the, the common goal. 
Absolutely. Um, obviously, the other thing that comes off from here is welfare policies that Cricket Australia and the ACA have actually come together to have their players, which now Pakistan and England and all of these people are also implementing. How important is this for, say, a cricketer who's coming into the fold who knows, okay, you know what, I have these things backing me up if something goes wrong or if I want to start a family. That's not something the Indian players, for instance, even think about India, Bangladesh. These people don't, the family, let me have a family, let me set. I hate using this term, settle down, but that never sort of comes into the ecosystem at all because you have to give up a career to have to look into that properly. Yeah, I, I mean, see, and, and again, it goes back to um, these policies and the Players Association creating an environment to allow the players to play at their peak, which means your peak is actually in your late 20s, early 30s. And by then, people may want to start a family. They may want to start a family really early but they can come back. I mean, um, you know, one of the great stories of this World Cup was the amount of mothers that were there. Um, I mean, for Amy and Bisma, who were the two that actually gave birth, I mean, credit to them. Um, but also we had um, uh, Megan Shute and her wife and Riley travel with the Australian team. And having kids around the group is actually a really good thing. People may think it's... It's a pain and, and obviously there's there's a, no doubt there's there's some issues that you need to kind of work through and teething problems. But at the end of the day, it probably makes people realise it's just a game of cricket. Like you come home, to, you see this kid and they're, they're smiley and bubbly whether you, your team's won or lost. Um, I think the group loved it. I, mean, I know the New Zealand girls um, love having, um, I think it's Gracie, isn't it? Yeah, so, um, you know, so I think... That's a huge development of the game since last World Cup and it's only going to get better. And, and I'd like to think that other national boards um, ensure that they start putting these type of policies in place because I think there'll be a lot of females that want to have a family start, but they want to still, they've still got a little bit more to give from a sporting point of view. So, Absolutely. Um, coming back to the IPL, Maybe a criticism that comes off for the sort of advocacy that happens for the women's IPL is that this is not going to solve all the problems that Indian cricket's got. So you, like you said, you need a feeder line that really puts talent even into a women's IPL. It's not that there is no talent to start it on, but yeah. to keep it going for a number of years, you really need systems in place at the grassroots level. Right now, the Indian board has had like a long time to figure out its domestic structure. So do you think we should just get going with the IPL and then figure out allied systems? So how do you sort of see that balance, the whole system IPL balance? Yeah, I mean, I'll be fascinated to see firstly which franchises jump at the opportunity. I, I, I like the idea of a little bidding war. <laughs> um, so I wouldn't be surprised if those franchises start to put things in place as well for them so that they they ensure that they capture the best. And that, that might be required. Maybe it, it, it will take outsiders to, to kind of put a system in place that may work um, for Indian cricket moving forward. Um, the thing is, you're right, where do you start? You know, what do you do? Um, I, I think sometimes, you know, and um, Mel Jones and I were quite, um, quite open at the start of WBBL and we said, oh, I don't think we should go to eight. We just don't think the talent pool was enough. But, you know, fast forward now and, and um they've proved us all wrong and, and it's, it's generated so much. So um, it will, it will change women's cricket globally. 
this this IPL. Um, first, firstly, it it will put women's cricket centre stage, and it will inspire so many young girls to take up the game, and that in itself will push states, cities, or so you know, cricket clubs, academies to all of a sudden go, hey, we probably need to put something in place for all of these girls that are rocking up now that want to play. Um, so it, hopefully the swell of female cricketers that want to play the game might be enough just to push everyone into the modern era. And you were talking about outsiders coming and putting things in place. Is that maybe um, a way of saying a foreign coach might do some good for an Indian setup as well? Uh, no, I, I was talking purely about the, you know, obviously um, private investors, you know, with the franchises, um, you know, some people that aren't necessarily intrinsically involved in BCCI. In terms of a foreign coach, um, yeah, I mean, you've got some talented cricketers there, don't you? Like it's just, and I look at all of the players that have played for India over the last two to three years and I think, God, there's still a lot you could probably get out of those players. Like they're not done and dusted yet. We don't need to put them on the shelf. <laughs> um, you can you can take them off the shelf and get them to, to still do their job. So, um, you know, I, I, think, I think there needs to be a clear guideline, a clear vision, and it, and it goes back to what the Australian team did as well. Like 2017 happened and it was almost like the coaching staff, the senior players and the selectors all went, right, if we're going to win a World Cup, this is what we need and we all need to be on the same page, whereas sometimes I feel not everyone's on the same page in India and I'm not privy to any of those conversations. So this is just me looking from afar. But if you can get everyone on the same page, then, you know, one thing that will come out of um uh, shortly is probably the future tours program for the women. So all of a sudden you've got mapped out till the next World Cup when all of your tours are taking place, where you're going. So start to put in place a vision of, okay, this is the core group. We want to blood certain people here. W what are we deficient in? What are we missing? How do we find it? Let's go to domestic. Let's try and find the next one. Let's give them an opportunity. You know, it's, it's that type of collaborative approach um, is needed. Can that happen with an Indian coach at the helm? Yeah, it can. Um, can it happen with a foreign coach at the helm? Yeah, it can. You just got to find the right person for the group going forward. But um, there's a wealth of talent there. There is a wealth of talent. Does this really require somebody to take up women's cricket separately? Because we did have like a women's cricket association, which then merged into the BCCI. Mm -hmm. But now that these are two completely different streams. Do you think this requires maybe a separate executive or anyone? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at um, I look at how integration happened here in Australia, and initially it was separate, like it was in in India. Um, then it merged. Um, you had maybe one person kind of overseeing women's cricket, but they what they thought was integration was let's integrate everything because we are one big company. But at the end of the day, that's an extra team, you know, extra players, extra coaching staff, extra junior pathways, it's a whole nother job. So what we've found here is, um, and I'll give the example of Cricket New South Wales, we've got head of cricket operations, which is Greg Mayle, and then you've got Michael Klinger, who's head of men's cricket slash 
boys, and then you've got Leah Poulton, head of women's cricket. Now, those two report to Greg, who oversees everything. So you've actually got people in place to just look after women's cricket. Now, this is Australia, which is a very small population compared to India, <laughs> and uh, the distance isn't as big, okay, and that's just in a state. So you look at India as a whole and you could start to do that not only in BCCI, but you could start to do it in states. And there's nothing stopping states actually doing that. There's nothing in, I believe, there's nothing in the mandate to say you can't employ someone solely looking after your women's programs. And there may be people out there, I'm not quite sure, I don't know all the state systems, but um, by having one person dedicated to running or administering or coordinating makes a big difference. Fair enough. As a final question, uh, this World Cup is sort of a clean slate because one cycle's done. Now we're at the start of the next. So what does a clean slate look like for a team like Australia that's already on top of the mountain? Where where do you think they should improve from here on? Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, you know, I look at this team and I think they're, they're once-in-a-lifetime players, some of them. Now they're going to retire. <laughs> um and that's going to be a big goal for Australia to, to kind of fill. So they've got to start to look to, to blood new players as well. So, um, you know, at the moment they should um, sit back and reflect on a wonderful campaign, five years. Um, Com Games is coming up, another T20 World Cup. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if a few players start to retire in the next 12 to 18 months. I don't know if we can convince them all to continue for another three years because um, a lot of the players have started well, with the Australian team, uh, you know, at such a young age as well. They probably want a bit of a life. That's one thing. When they probably came in initially, it was one tour a year, whereas now it's two to three tours a year and it's a jam-packed, you know, you put the 100, the WBBL, maybe a women's IPL, or you don't have much time off. So it's been a big jump quite quickly. So... Um, so it's about making sure that the next players coming through can pick up where they left off, um, which will take some time. And the Australian team may take a bit of a hit, um, but that's expected when when you're kind of restarting again. Do you see the same thing applying to us dealing with, say, Mithali and Julan being where they are? Do you see this same conversation needing to happen in India as well? Yeah, Um one thing that's one thing that I know is, is different to Indian cricket um, compared to Australian cricket is we tap players on the shoulder and tell them to go. Um, doesn't matter who they are. Ricky Ponting is a prime example, um, you know, and that was one thing I was very conscious of as a player. I didn't want to get tapped on the shoulder, so I went before they could tap me. <laughs> um, you know, so I I think. People need to be honest with all players going through what their role is. Can they contribute? Are they the right fit for the team moving forward? I mean, I'll give you another example, not an Australian example, is Charlotte Edwards. You know, um, what's his name? I can't remember the coach's name. Um, I can see him. Anyway, he he sat down with her and, and no doubt I would imagine um, Charlotte thought 2017 is my swan song, you know, home World Cup. And she was still the leading run scorer for England in all of the series. But he tapped her on the shoulder and went, sorry, you're not what we need right now. You're actually holding the group back, which is devastating for a legend like her 
but then it's justified, isn't it, when they win the World Cup? So um, sometimes your best players can can sometimes hold back the next generation because they're always in awe of of what you do. Um, and same thing with um, Elise Perry this summer. She got dropped from the T20 side because she doesn't fit in. Now, I know um, a lot of people in India tweeted about it and a few of my friends over there said, I can't believe you've dropped Elise Perry. And it's like, but sh- her numbers don't match up to what they're trying to do. So regardless of the aura of who she is, she doesn't fit the brand that they're trying to play. So, I mean, so we're quite ruthless, <laughs> whereas in India it's almost like you wait until the players say, thank you, I've had enough now. Um, I would have loved to have seen because obviously Julian got injured um, and she didn't get to a chance to, to play that last game. I would have loved to have seen India kind of put, put on a series soon after um, this World Cup where they where it was almost a swan song for both of them. I mean, I don't know um, what they want to do moving forward, but you would imagine that going out the way they did is not ideal. So how can you, and I'm sure BCCI will speak to them as well, how do we give them the proper farewell? Because they've been, they've been the two leaders of Indian women's cricket for such a long time and you just don't want them to disappear, but you know, at some point you've got to move forward. <laughs> that was our chat with Lisa Stalekar. A big shout out to her for making time in the middle of a very hectic schedule to chat with us about the World Cup and her team. Lisa and England legend Charlotte Edwards contributed to our cover story in this fortnight's edition of Star. We take a look at the systems in Australia and England that have helped them get ahead of the curve in the women's game. We've also put together what awaits the other six teams for the rest of the year, so do make sure you check those out as well. You can get your hands on a copy or even check out the stories online. All of the relevant links are in the description of this episode. That brings us to the end of this edition of Not Just a Man's World. We'll be back with another interview or story or development to discuss next Tuesday on this podcast. Meanwhile, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so and support the work that we do. If you have feedback, a story pitch, or just some words of love and encouragement for this podcast, let me know by dropping a mail to the ID mentioned in the description or finding us on Twitter as well. Keep a tab on Sportstar for your on-the-go fix of sports news. Until next week, goodbye and take care.